my fellow Americans and all those listening overseas. Welcome back to Visiting the Presidents. I am your host, Joe Fakash, and today we will be visiting Millard Fillmore in his birthplace outside Moravia, New York, our second trip into the Empire State after Martin Van Buren in episode eight. Now, let us start with the knowledge <laughs> that many of us are not all that familiar with Millard Fillmore. In doing research for this project, I learned a lot more about Millard than I thought I already knew. And so hopefully you'll find some of his rise to power interesting. You know, certainly when we look at the presidents in the 19th century, we're talking about a lot of forgettable individuals. Some of that is owed, of course, to the huge standout presidents, men like Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, Andrew Jackson, Abraham Lincoln, the men for whom there are statues and museums and musicals written about them. They are the ones for good and for ill who attract a lot of the attention, a lot of the literature, a lot of the conjecture that historians have had. And so in comparison, of course, Millard Fillmore and Franklin Pierce and Rutherford Hayes are going to be mere shadow figures. Add to that the fact that the office is going to constrain a lot of the personal imagination and the ability to stamp the office with this legacy the way that we might expect today. And then on top of that, add the situation in the country at this time. And Millard Fillmore is a mere substitute uh, for what we would expect from that office. What I found really interesting about Millard Fillmore, however, is what a creature of the 19th century political sphere that he really was. He is emblematic of a lot of the men who would be taking these positions and kind of falls into the office, as opposed to some of the other figures who we'll be talking about later on in the series. Certainly, he was a political player. Certainly, he was a political animal. And to be a figure in New York politics at that time would have taken a certain insatiable desire. But, you know, one of the things that we are just going to lay bare is going to be the fact that certainly we are very critical of these presidents right before and then right after the Civil War. You know, certainly when we look back on Fillmore and Taylor, who he succeeds, and then the men who come after in Pierce and Buchanan, and then the Reconstruction era, you know, we see their failures. We see how these tensions exploded. And so that is definitely going to make it so that these men today seem as ciphers when it comes to what we would expect a president to do and how we would expect them to rise to the moment. They were average men in almost every way thrust into this giant office. And so those are the terms in which I want us to think about Millard Fillmore. I want to make clear I'm not trying to excuse his decision making and the men who we'll be talking about in subsequent weeks. You know, it is important that we are critical. It is important that we hold them to certain standards, but it is also important to see them for the human individuals, the men with these frailties and shortcomings. And Millard Fillmore has a ton of those frailties. We will likely explore this at some point, but the office of the presidency, of course, is going to evolve over the centuries as well. 
the idea that the president should be in on every decision the way we expect today is very different from what it would have been back in the 1800s. I always refer to most of the 19th century presidents as being game managers. You know, they were there to make sure everything was running efficiently and really to make as little waves as possible. And when they did, that was usually cause for real alarm. And so in that way, Millard Fillmore is an average president. I am not trying to say that he is above average in any capacity, but we do have to think about what the office looked like in that time versus what our expectations would be for today. It is not a through line. It is going to be a real evolution in terms of expectations. With that, let's dig into Millard Fillmore. He is born on January the 7th, 1800, in a log cabin in Locke, sometimes referred to as Summerhill, sometimes referred to as Moravia itself. I can tell you from having visited the site that it is out in the middle of nowhere. It is in none of those places. It is on the side of the road today in the middle of all of these locations. So calling it rural Cayuga County, New York is perfect, but you'll sometimes see it as Locke, sometimes as Summerhill, sometimes as Moravia. He is named for his mother's maiden name. Her last name had been Millard. And so if you think that that's a weird first name, he is the only Millard president. I don't know how popular of a name that is even today, but that's where he gets that name from. Like I mentioned at the end of last week's episode, this makes him our first president born in the 1800s. He comes in just one week into that new century. Now, I know what you're thinking. The century really doesn't begin until 1801, but you know what I mean. The Fillmores were British, and Nathaniel Fillmore had served in the American Revolution, like some of our other uh, presidential fathers that we've discussed. Now, Nathaniel serves as a farmer in Bennington, Vermont, and then decides he is tired of trying to till the soil. And so he is very excited that he gets this deed to land in New York in Cayuga County. And so he heads over there. And when he shows up, it is devastating to find out that that deed had been riddled with mistakes and will eventually default. And so Nathaniel, as he moves his family all over this area from Niles to the place in the middle of Locke and Summerhill and Moravia, and then to other locations. He has been working basically as a tenant farmer that entire time and is humiliated, is devastated. And unfortunately, this also is then passed on to his son and the rest of their children that they are going to be scrambling to get by for their entire existence. And so this does give us insight into the hopes that they will pin on their eldest son. Millard will be the second child, but the first boy. There will be nine children in total, including five brothers. And all of the hopes, like I said, are pinned on young Millard and the hope that he could definitely at least advance his standing. And then in some way that could be, you know, then provided for the family as well. And so um, that is really going to kind of color the way that they treat Millard growing up. Nathaniel is a bit older than his wife, Phoebe, who is 16 when she gets married to Nathaniel and will be just 20 when she gives birth to young Millard. From the beginning, Millard is going to have to help out with everything that's going on on the various farms, clearing fields, plowing, harvesting, and chopping wood. 
the fun times that he does have, he is going to be enjoying hunting and fishing around a nearby lake. And he is filled with his father's hopes and his father's ambitions and really has this desire to leave the farm. He does not want that for himself. His father is going to try to set him up as an apprentice with a cloth maker named Benjamin Hungerford in Sparta, New York, when Millard is just 14 years old. And Millard just hates it. He hates everything about it. And so he will quit after just four months working there. And then his father sends him to another uh, apprenticeship, and he will like that one much better. It'll be in New Hope, and he is going to be working for two men known as Cheney and Kellogg. Now, from a very early age, Millard is going to really be more hard scrabble. He is going to, in many ways, resemble our later president, Abraham Lincoln, in terms of being a real uh, pull-yourself-up-by-the-bootstraps kind of individual. He has a hunger for himself, a hunger for learning. He's be a self-driver, and he's be very humble in his upbringing, and that really does kind of carry through his whole life. He is going to be very likable and enjoys being around other people, but is a definite introvert. This is probably a good time to tell you that his personality type was an ISFP, and we'll see where some of those characteristics are going to really kind of carry through. One of the characteristics that really kind of stood out to me after looking through his entire life was something uh, that will uh, later be an issue when he becomes vice president and then president, where he is going to have this real kind of unpredictable streak and is very sensitive to the needs of other people, but is also going to see himself as completely independent. And that is something that definitely carries through Millard's entire life. He is very self-conscious of his upbringing. Uh, Certainly there's no formal education for Millard in the same way that Abraham Lincoln and Andrew Johnson will have no formal education as well. And so he definitely is very self-conscious about that and will speak very slowly and deliberately and always uses short words and short sentences. And from all of the different sources I've read, he could be very engaging and very persuasive one-on-one, but he will never be a great orator or somebody who is going to be very persuasive to a large group. Now, one of the things that he is also going to be kind of hung up on is really using logic and practicality and not using emotion. And so this does kind of hamper him when we see the country devolving into these tensions over slavery and the expansion of slavery. Millard himself will never own slaves and is not interested in owning slaves and does not see that slavery is a positive thing. But he also doesn't think that it's worth getting so worked up about. And obviously that becomes a huge blind spot for him. He will never get into huge arguments and prefers to kind of break down some of these discussions, arguments into really personal terms and work through them that way. According to his biographer, Robert Rayback, a spark of idealism smoldered in his mind. Because his whole training had been aimed toward making or improving his livelihood, nothing could ever ignite the spark that would place him in that class of complete idealists who steadfastly cling to their visions, no matter how inimical to their interests. 
but the trait was there, seldom dominating, yet always helping to shape his values. One of the things that carries through his entire life is that Millard is in love with reading. And we'll talk about that as we go through his life and then into the presidency. And this is going to also help him when it comes to finding his eventual wife. Now, he doesn't like any what he calls fancy tomes. He likes practical books. He wants to read about things that are going to matter in his life. And so down the road, those will really kind of serve when it comes to helping to develop Buffalo and its city features. We'll see some of these interests really kind of carrying over there. In terms of his religion, Millard was a Unitarian, but it isn't ever clear how or why he chose the church. And he doesn't formally join until he is in his 30s. And like many of the presidents we've talked about, he really does not invoke his faith in any speeches and is actually going to work to abolish a New York law that required witnesses to swear in a belief in God. Life was definitely difficult for the Fillmores and young Millard. And one thing that Nathaniel tried to do almost always was to carve out some areas where he would take on extra work and hopefully free up some time so that Millard could pursue some form of education. He does learn to read and write from his mother, but it is a basic kind of rudimentary education. But we do owe Phoebe the credit for helping to spark in her son this interest and love for reading. And I'm like that where I know that a lot of my interest was owed to my parents reading to me from an early age, and that is going to be something that is very instrumental in in young Millard. There is a circulating library in the small town that the Fillmores live in, and that is going to really fill Millard's imagination and his hunger for other books and more sophisticated forms of learning. He is going to have a dictionary that he kind of carries around with him so that he can kind of understand what he's reading at all hours. And so when he does get that job in the mill in New Hope, he's going to be reading in any free time that he has. By 19, he finally gets to enroll in an academy, this time in that same town of New Hope. And he becomes the kind of favorite student of his teacher, Abigail Powers, who will fall in love with her student, which you're not supposed to do. And they do get married and she will become first lady. And she is the one who is credited with helping create the White House library on the uh, basement level of the White House. So um, we will talk about her in season two, but just giving you some insight into where this love for reading will kind of manifest. Later in that same year, Phoebe, Millard's mother, is going to persuade Nathaniel to arrange for Millard to be able to study law under the county judge, Walter Wood, in Montville, not too far from Moravia. And when they tell Millard that he has this apprenticeship, he's going to burst into tears, which I think is just the most adorable story, but also one that gives you real insight into how hard working this family was. Judge Wood is going to offer to let 
Millard stay on as a permanent student if he could pay off his indenture contract. Millard will take up some teaching to help with the debts as well. One of the things that Judge Wood required Millard to do was to operate some of the tenant farms, meaning that it was up to Millard to have to evict poor families, not unlike his own family. And he is going to eventually get into this really difficult argument with Judge Wood in 1821 when Millard is taking jobs outside of the firm in order to get some money to pay off his contract, and the judge does not agree with that. So Millard is then going to accept a teaching offer over in Buffalo, and he is going to there finish up his law studies under Asa Rice and Joseph Clary and will be admitted to the bar in 1823. He is then going to move to nearby East Aurora, and a lot of that is owed to the fact that he thinks he would be eaten alive if he had stayed in Buffalo, and so he wants to kind of create his own sphere of influence. And so he's going to start his own law practice in this small home that you can still visit today. And there is going to start getting involved in politics as an anti-Mason. And this is where we start to see the burgeoning political career of Millard Fillmore. If you remember when we talked last week about Zachary Taylor and the fact that he was basically a political independent, but was then as a candidate shaped more into what he opposed and what he was against rather than necessarily what he was for. And so became a Whig kind of by happenstance in the same way that is going to be what happens to Millard Fillmore. Keep in mind, New York, the Empire State was its own kind of political jungle and Millard would have been right in on the action. He doesn't know it, but he is growing up in the same county as somebody who will serve as a political rival for his entire life, William Seward, who you might know as Abraham Lincoln's Secretary of State. And it's going to be these tensions, this competitiveness that he has with William Seward that really is going to color his political career. Now, the one thing that is going to really be something that Millard gravitates towards is an opposition to Andrew Jackson. And that is something that we saw when we talked about William Henry Harrison and Zachary Taylor in terms of their kind of political flavor. They knew that they were against this man who many viewed as kind of like a charlatan, many viewed as a political nightmare. They knew that Andrew Jackson was a Mason And to a lot of people at this time in New York and in our early country, that signified this cabal of elites. You know, George Washington had been a Mason. Some of the other founding fathers had been a Mason. And there was, if you think about the way that QAnon has spread today in our current political environment, it would have been really scary at this time to think about how much of our country was evolving and how quickly things seem to be kind of trending towards these expansionist powers under somebody like an Andrew Jackson. So Millard knew that he did not like Andrew Jackson, knew that he wanted to belong to this group that seemed to really have their finger on the pulse of what was wrong with this Masonic uh, sway. And so he becomes an anti-Mason. And in doing so is going to kind of fall under the political sway of a local editor, Thurlow Weed. And Thurlow Weed is going to 
be a kind of political animal, a political machine, not unlike what we'll see in later years with the Tammany Hall and the Pendergast in Kansas City, where Thurlow Weed gets to kind of run the show in this central part of New York. Now, keep in mind, the other New Yorker that became a president, Martin Van Buren, is an avid pro-Jackson. And so Fillmore is going to be among this group that's up and coming who positions themselves as anti-Jackson. And that is going to be enough to help build a political career at this time. And so he will eventually get elected to the state assembly representing Erie County. And then from there is going to quickly be elected to the U.S. House of Representatives in 1833. He's going to serve just that one term. And interestingly, the congressional terms started in December. So he had actually been elected for almost a year when he finally was able to take his seat. And he is going to quickly see the writing on the wall that being a (laughs) anti-Jackson candidate is not going to be enough to really kind of build a career on. And as Jackson's power gets more and more prominent, he is going to kind of quickly accede the ground. He's going to step down after that one term, go back to Buffalo and start building up his credentials again. Now, during this period, he's also going to be instrumental in helping to develop several of the big features in Buffalo, including the Lyceum, which was a self-improvement organization, the Young Men's Association, a Mutual Fire Association, the Buffalo Fine Arts Academy, the Buffalo Historical Society, the Buffalo General Hospital, and the University of Buffalo, which he will serve on their board of regents until he dies. And so this is the guy in Buffalo. So even if you don't recognize him as a great president, certainly for Buffalo, he is going to be one of their major features. And you still find that even to this day. Now, during this period, Fillmore is going to be instrumental in helping to create the Whig Party in New York. And the Whigs are literally (laughs) built to oppose Andrew Jackson. They had used as this kind of slur against President Jackson that he was King Andrew. And so the opposition in England was the Whig party. And so the opposition to our King Andrew was this Whig party. And Millard Fillmore is in on the ground floor in that opposition. And here he is going to be developing, again, (laughs) this competitiveness with William Seward, where Seward is outspoken and unrelenting in his criticism of slavery. And Miller just does not see it as being something that the federal government can get involved in. And as a Northerner, he just does not uh, see it as something that is really kind of worth his time. And so that is going to be where uh, they are very different in terms of their views on slavery. And that is going to definitely inform their kind of political choices down the road. Millard will then get re-elected as a Whig this time instead of just an anti-Mason in 1837 after one term away. Millard is going to rise through the ranks of the Republican House and eventually becomes chair of the House Ways and Means Committee, where he is going to get to hold a lot of kind of political power and political sway. But he is going to tire of this as well, and he will eventually step down in July of 1842. He's going to announce that he's going to um, step down from the house and return to Buffalo. And for many, they wondered if his career was over. Instead, it's going to have a second life when he's going to be one of the candidates for uh, the 
nomination for vice president in 1848. Now, keep in mind, a lot of that had to do with, one, the reputation that he was building in New York, and two, the prominence of New York, especially when we're going to see Zachary Taylor, this president who has a presidential candidate who has no political experience, you're going to need to counter that with somebody who has a lot of it, and that would be Fillmore. And to contrast somebody who is going to be born in Virginia and living in Louisiana, they're going to get somebody from the North, and that is going to be where Millard Fillmore kind of fits that role perfectly. So that's where we'll end with Millard Fillmore and his political rise. When we talk about him in season two, we'll get into that period right before he becomes president, and you might know that he gets thrust into the office unexpectedly. But that's the only spoiler you'll get for now. Now on to the Fillmore birthplace. The log cabin that Nathaniel built was a small one door and one window home. Millard later will write that the home was, quote, completely shut out from enterprises of civilization and achievement. So that gives you a good idea of how Millard viewed his home. The cabin remained standing until 1852 when it was torn down for firewood. Right as his term was ending, which is just talk about an ignominious end to your birthplace. In the 1860s, the town of Bennington, Vermont, where the Fillmores had been from, claimed that Millard had been born about two miles outside of that town in an old wooden farmhouse known as Dimmick Stand. The error was then revealed and corrected, and so they rescinded that claim and recognition. But it was not until 1929 when the town of Summerhill is going to be motivated by the interests in the birthplaces of Washington and Jefferson and Lincoln, and so they start to generate some interest in commemorating their president. Now, I know what you're thinking. Fillmore is no Washington, Jefferson, or Lincoln, but in a town that small, And for what Millard did contribute to that section of New York and the fact that Millard was going to have been a real avatar for the kind of men and families that lived in Western New York, you know, it really would have been worth commemorating. While many around Summerhill knew the general location of the Fillmore birthplace, It took a man named Marquis de Lafayette French, which is a great name, who was 83 years old and grew up in that area and frequently played at that birth site. And so in 1932, the New York State Education Department put up a historical marker about 100 feet from the site. That same marker stands today and is reading simply, Millard Fillmore, 13th President of the United States, was born in a log cabin in an adjacent field January 7th, 1800. In 1965, the Millard Fillmore Memorial Association built a replica of the birthplace cabin, and they tried to make it as authentic as possible by modeling it off of what was found at a similar cabin in that area. So today, if you go to visit, there are two separate sites. The first is the actual birthplace, And there is now a kind of picnic shelter. There is a sign that gives credit to a company called Nucor, N-U-C-O-R, who had built a kind of picnic pavilion um, on that site. And there are, uh, there's that marker. There is a plaque that shows the approximate area. 
And where we believe the birth cabin originally stood, they have it outlined in rock. Now, when you go into town, you will find then the Fillmore Glen State Park in Moravia, where they have the birthplace replica of the cabin. Now, that park is really cool. It is a Civilian Conservation Corps project from the 1930s, and you do have to pay an admittance fee to be able to access the site and to get to go into the cabin. But I would argue it's worth it. The day that I went, it was really warm and beautiful summer, mid-New York. It was really kind of perfect, and there were tons of families going in. There were all sorts of areas to swim and to walk around, hike, all that kind of thing, and so that area is very well taken care of. Now, the birth site <laughs> where I went, you know, I was coming from uh, Vermont. I had gone to see the Chester Arthur birthplace the previous day. And so I was coming down from the northeast and coming across most of the state of New York. And I stopped in some of the other communities around there, including Oneida. I just have a kind of fascination with the Oneida community. Maybe I'll get to that at some point. But um, then was trying to find the Millard Fillmore birthplace. And like I said, it is in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> there is nothing around. And for a while, you're going on these very um, rudimentary roads without any indication that you're anywhere near it. All of the signage and you know, anything off of the GPS was always indicating to go into Moravia. But I just knew from research that it was out in this area, the uh, birthplace pavilion. And when I went, there was nobody around. <laughs> I took a photo with the sign. I took a photo with the um, birthplace rocks and the pavilion behind, but this was unobtrusive. There's, there's nobody there. So then going into Moravia, it is a very nice town and uh, very manicured, exactly kind of what you conjure when you think of, you know, that middle part of New York in the kind of Finger Lakes region, very Oak Lawn kind of place. And there was a state park. And like I said, it was very well visited. There were a ton of people there for the afternoon. And the birthplace cabin was fine. It was a cabin. And there were newspaper clippings and other information inside the cabin. And, you know, you got the sense of just how humble this site would have been with nine children, two adults living in it. It really does give you a sense for just how humble those beginnings really would have been. In that, I definitely think that that is going to be the real kind of takeaway. One thing I forgot to mention about Millard's father, Nathaniel, he is our oldest father of a president. He's going to live into his 90s, and he'll be the first father to get to visit his son in the White House. So he gets to see his son go all the way from these humble beginnings where that was his only dream was to see his son uh, do better. And, you know, by the family's estimation, he completely overshot any expectation they could have possibly had. Now, again, from our perspective, when we're looking at these dynamic figures in American history, Millard Fillmore is going to fall very short. And a lot of that is going to be owed to the fact that he is succeeding into the office. You know, we were still working out. He's only the second vice president to become president. And he is not going to himself have uh, the facility to have some of these great 
debate or decisions about this scourge that's going. You know, that they, they really did believe that they could compromise on an issue like slavery. And that in itself is going to be really kind of foolhardy. And um, we'll definitely talk about that decision when we get into season two. But uh, Millard is going to really be sidelined with having to kind of fulfill that presidency, but also not really doing anything of real note to make himself stand out and spends the rest of his life trying to kind of defend this decision. So to my mind, you know, Miller does pretty well in terms of the birthplace commemorations, that there are two separate sites that are dedicated to him. And then if you go further west and go to East Aurora, you can visit his home that he had with Abigail. And then if you go into Buffalo, there's a statue and a plaque where his home had been, and his gravesite is very well maintained. So he doesn't do poorly, um, as poorly as some of the other more forgotten presidents. I think he does pretty well for himself, uh, all things considered. So that's where we'll leave Millard Fillmore for today. And like I said, we'll visit him again in season two. Now, next week, we will be visiting Franklin Pierce and our first president born in New Hampshire. So far, the only president from New Hampshire. This was a very fun one to try to track down. And Franklin Pierce falls into that category, along with Millard and James Buchanan after him. And then a lot of those other forgotten 19th century presidents. But learning about him, reading and researching a bit more about him, I think he's just as fascinating, just as much of a strange egg. And I think you'll really enjoy getting to know Franklin Pierce and his rise to the presidency just as much as I did. So look forward to that one. Remember to be checking out the podcast website at visitingthepresidents.com where you can find photographs of my trips, other images, and links to other readings and visitor information. For this episode, my sources were Doug Weed's The Raising of a President, William D. Gregorio's complete book of U.S. presidents, and Louis Picone's Where the Presidents Were Born. I have added a PayPal link on the episode page on visitingthepresidents.com, as well as the episode page. Any monies received will be used for future trips, as well as the hosting fees for the website and for the podcast. Remember, you can also help support Visiting the Presidents by liking and subscribing on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you get this podcast, as well as being a fan of the social media sites. I am on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Visiting the Presidents. And remember to be checking out the website at visitingthepresidents.com and subscribing there as well. Now let's get in our cars and go to visit the presidents. See ya.